Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Gradient Podcast. The Gradient is a digital magazine that aims to be a place for discussion about research and trends in artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is an extension of that. We interview various people in the field of AI, ranging from researchers to practitioners and beyond. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Abu Bakr Abid. Abu Bakr is an entrepreneur and researcher focused on AI and its applications to medicine. He is currently running the company Gradio, which is developing a product to generate an easy-to-use UI for any machine learning model, function, or API. He is also running the Fatima Al-Thiri Predoctoral Fellowship, which is a nine-month program for computer science students from around the world who are planning on applying to PhD programs in the United States. And he was also involved in the writing of the Gradient article, A Visual History of Interpretation for Image Recognition, which is very cool and, and you can check out on our site. And last of all, uh, but maybe uh, most fun of all, he was also a classmate of mine back in high school. So we've known each other for quite a while. So uh, needless to say, I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation and thanks for making the time to be a guest on here, Abu Walker. Thank you. It's good to talk to you again, Andre. Yeah, same. So uh, yeah, let's get started, I guess, uh, going back a bit into the past. I've done research also at Stanford, where I'm at in AI, and um, I'm curious uh, how you kind of got there, what got you started in AI in general and led you towards your focus there. Yeah, so uh, my path to AI has been a little bit indirect. I actually graduated uh, from undergrad and did my master's at MIT in electrical engineering and computer science, but it was mostly on the electrical engineering side. And when I joined Stanford uh, doing my PhD, I was actually interested in building wireless de- charging mechanisms for medical devices. So imagine these like little medical devices that are sitting in your stomach or somewhere and they're being charged by this external wireless charger and sending Bluetooth information and so on. And I started working with Ada Poon and Tom So, who are um, some great professors here at Stanford, building these devices. Um, But as part of those devices, uh, what you had to do was actually uh, solve these complex biological and genetic uh, problems. So for example, we were working with these little uh, molecules known as aptamers. And what aptamers are, uh, they're short DNA sequences that bind to proteins. And it's not a deterministic process. It's kind of hard to figure out what aptam or what DNA sequence will bind to what protein. So we had to solve this bioinformatics you know, type problem. And at, at the moment, the, the kind of the, the best ways to do that was to actually use machine learning systems. So I spent some time learning machine learning and I just uh, realized that's what I wanted to work on. And so I switched my area of focus from medical devices to machine learning. I ended up rotating with James Zoe at Stanford, uh, who was a fantastic mentor, supervisor, um, worked with him for several years, um, solving these various, you know, machine learning problems, but also machine learning applications to biology problems. And since then, I've been in this uh, in this field. I got it. Yeah, that's uh, quite interesting. I think it's often the case that people get to where they are in their PhD in somewhat interesting ways. Were you also interested in uh, medicine and biology in your undergrad and master's? You're doing more double E and and CS? Yeah, you know, I've always had some interest in healthcare and medicine, 
I think I, I attribute to that to my parents uh, who are both doctors and have always gently nudged me towards that path. Um, <laughs> it didn't actually start off as gentle nudging, but eventually it became <laughs> more gentle over time. Um, but so I've always been interested in applications of, of healthcare. Um, and so even when I was doing uh, electrical engineering, I was looking at medical devices. Um, and now, you know, again, now I'm doing machine learning. I feel like many of the most interesting and maybe most impactful applications are definitely in healthcare. And so hopefully that's, that's, uh, that's something I can, you know, pursue, uh, that interdisciplinary, you know, intersection is something I can continue to pursue. Makes sense. And, uh, I guess I'm also curious. I know, or I recall you were, you, you did you know, a lot of things, obviously like anyone and, uh, Part of that was you, you've done a stint at Y Combinator with mm. uh, an, an electrical engineering type company. Yeah. So, yeah, given when you finished master's, I assume you had, you know, many ways you could have gone. Uh, what led you to decide on doing a PhD and then doing more research kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, you know, it's hard to sometimes make sense of the decisions you made in the past. But for me, I remember thinking at that time when I started my PhD that, Yes, I liked entrepreneurship. Um, I had some experience with it. I, I was part of a software company and then also a hardware company. Um, I liked engineering. I liked building things. But I knew whatever startup I would eventually be part of, I wanted it to be very technical. Because I think there is a range of startups, right? There's startups where the technical innovation is a major driving force of it. And then there's uh, a startups where uh, where you know there's in, more innovation on the business side. Uh, a lot of different people could have put the technical infrastructure together, but it's more about finding the right market and and convincing buyers and so on. Um, and then there is and you know that's great. And I think both of the startups I was involved with had more more of that aspect. But then I, I realized my role quickly became less interesting, uh, and I wanted to continue to drive the technical innovation, work on the product side. And so I figured one way to do that might be able to go more deeply into the technical side of things and like, you know, develop some sort of niche technology or some sort of interesting invention and try to commercialize that and, and, and focus on building a product around that. And the hope was, <laughs> which is somewhat unrealistic, but the hope was if I build something awesome, you know, the selling, selling will become easier and it'll become less important. Um, and so I, that's why, that's one of the reasons why I decided to pursue the PhD. I've also always just loved being at the cutting edge of, you know, let's, let's just figure out what the latest things that are happening. I love going to a conference and just being surrounded by, you know, the posters of the latest research and just saying, oh, they're so cool. They did this. Oh, you know, they did this, but I bet it would be even better if they did that. I just love being in that kind of setting. And so I feel like an academic path, the PhD was, was, uh, a way to satisfy those different uh, cravings, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I, when I was thinking about whether to do a PhD or go to industry, at that point, I was I was fairly split. I was looking at some startup opportunities and some other options, mm -hmm. and then at that time, I was definitely, you know, one of the things on my mind has been, well, you know, I enjoy research, and um, all these other kinds of things I can do later for sure. Right. But PhD is, uh, kind of hard to, <laughs> yeah. uh, just do whenever. So, <laughs> you know, I can, I can do research for a while, learn more, get more experience and then see what uh, makes sense after. And that's kind of a nice thing with PhD. You can, you can start it and then 
get a lot of experience so just be unique and then go yeah. in, in various directions yeah I, I think in terms of you know maximizing your flexibility it's a it's a good option it's a good option even during the course of a phd i remember my my advisor was so flexible in terms of internships side projects entrepreneurial projects um and i think it probably depends you know that does depend on your advisor but it's just it's it's a nice it's a nice feeling to know that you own your own time and you can work on whatever you want. Um, so you have this podcast, for example. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say, like, the gradient has been one of my side projects and yeah. something I probably wouldn't have done, you know, if, if I was starting a company or even working hard at a company. I think there is a sort of spirit of getting to explore and to pursue your own opportunities and, you know, find what is exciting to you in a PhD, which is generally useful, you know, as a philosophy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, speaking about your PhD, um, maybe taking a bit of a, a side into talking about your area of expertise. Um, I saw one of the papers you're a co-author on is a primer on deep learning in genomics. And um, that one uh, I noticed because I feel like I know very little about deep learning in genomics. And so a primer yeah. sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, maybe uh, can you give me and the listeners, you know, a primer on this primer or maybe even go more broadly sort of about deep learning and uh, medicine and sort of broadly, what is the uh, state of it? Kind of where are people doing things? What are the exciting possibilities? Just like a two minute summary, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll try. That's pretty broad, but uh, so yes, that paper, a primer on deep learning and genomics, what that paper does is that captures the common workflow in trying to apply deep learning to genomics problems. And that is first you collect your data, you then build a model for that data, and then you you know produce your outputs, you produce your results. Uh, and then you have to focus heavily on interpreting those results as well. And so what we do in that paper is we take a very common problem in genomics, which is transcription factor binding. And so the goal of that problem is, let's try to figure out what proteins will bind to what DNA sequences. So, you know, proteins binding to DNA sequences is like the basis for so many different biological processes. For example, replication of DNA. Um, so proteins have to bind to different parts of the DNA. But what parts of the DNA do they, figure, do they bind to? Can we predict, okay, this protein is going to bind to this DNA sequence or is it not going to? Um, so you can collect data. You can collect experimental data. Um, let's say you have a thousand sequences of, hey, here's pro here are sequences that protein X does bind to. Here are sequences that protein X does not bind to. You can train a classifier um, and you can train, you know, various different kinds of things. But protein sequence is not very different from text. So you can you can actually train a, you know, uh, um, well, nowadays it would be maybe even be a transformer architecture. But in those days, it was an LSTM architecture or even a convolutional architecture um, on this kind of data, you can make your predictions. Uh, and the cool thing is you can actually go back and then try to interpret your predictions as well. Meaning you can say, okay, of these 1000 sequences, this is the subsequence that they had in common that the protein was likely binding to. Um, and this is actually a hard problem because it's not always a deterministic sequence. There's some fault tolerance that you have to build into your system. And it can be hard to write these algorithms from scratch. But with machine learning, it's almost, you know, plug and play. You just put it in, you, you, you train your models, and then you take any sort of standard saliency type, you know, interpretation method, and then you have your answer. 
Um, and so the paper was kind of a walkthrough of that. And it explained that and it offered an interactive tutorial that you could try as well. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's now been, it's been now been used by all sorts of uh, folks in the genomics field. Um, and the cool thing is, you know, you asked for, I think, applications of deep learning in medicine. That is way too broad for me to cover. In yeah, I just realized there's like, <laughs> you know, uh, development of drugs, uh, you know, um, obviously uh, checking for various diseases, like there's a ton of Medi- them, so yeah, that's, that's a bit much. Yeah, that's hard. But even within genomics, the kind of the exciting thing is even in just genomics, so subset of, you know, biomedicine, even in genomics, there's so many interesting problems. Um, so like a couple of interesting problems. One is variant calling. So this is a very common problem, which is, let's say I, I, I sequence your DNA. Okay. Now what happens is that even though, even if you, even though, let's say you give me like a, a sample of your saliva and I, and I sequence it, uh, I don't actually get one single read out, you know, consisting of a billion nucleotides. What ends up actually happening is uh, you have something called high throughput sequencing, which takes your DNA and cuts it into little pieces. And it sequences each of those little pieces. And each of those pieces is maybe something like 100 nucleotides. And then there's like a puzzle that's involved, which is like putting together all of these different 100 pieces and their various copies into the whole um, into the whole genome. And this might sound like a hard problem, but one thing that makes it easier is that we have a reference human genome. So we kind of know what the overall puzzle should look like. And now it's just a matter of putting these puzzle pieces in the right place. Now, of course, it's not enough to put in the right... Uh, the challenge here is that your DNA will not look exactly like the reference DNA. It'll have certain variants. And so that's what variant calling is. It's like figuring out what are your variants with reference to the human genome. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very important problem. Um, and a couple of years ago, Google released this paper, paper called Deep Variant. And what they showed was you could take these little... Uh, you could take these subsequences of, you know, you could take these hundred base sequences, these tiny sequences, and you could assemble it almost like a jigsaw puzzle and then run image classification algorithms. So these standard image algorithms that, you know, convolutional neural networks are really good at. And now you have other architectures that are really good at. Um, you could take these those pipelines and not really much and not really have to do too much, you know, domain expertise or tuning. And you have these great networks for variant calling, and it beat all other methods. This <laughs> <laughs> is incredible. Um, and and uh, um, and yeah, so you know, there's a lot of really, I think, interesting classical problems in genomics that you can apply uh, neural networks and, and machine learning to towards. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thanks for that uh, overview. I I think uh, it's interesting to think of like this primer being in you know, in part for people in genomics to understand how deep learning might be useful. Uh, it's, it seems to be, I think, an indication of what is true of a lot of um, deep learning in medicine, as far as I can tell, which is trying to figure out how to get these tools in the hands of yeah. uh, subject uh, matter experts. You know, it's, it's an ongoing process, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Exactly. No, it, it very much is. And it, sometimes, you know, I've kind of described this as like a cut and paste process. But I think in many other cases, it's actually, you do have to learn how to change some of the methodology to take into account some of the specific problems in medicine, you know, heavy levels of confounding variables, batch effects, shifts, and all of these things that um, are more common in these other domains uh, compared mm-hmm. to standard, you know, regular machine learning. 
Right, right. There's a whole subfield of machine learning for medicine now, which is quite big and has its, yeah, <laughs> many people at Stanford are focused on it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned uh, deep variants, uh, I guess one tangent we can go on since uh, you're here, um, and which I think you might be able to comment on, um, just you know, immediately comes to mind is also from Google or DeepMind was AlphaFold. Mm-hmm. Right, which was a huge, big yeah. news story, uh, and another application of uh, deep learning to biology, medicine, yeah. I suppose, for protein folding. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe um, do you think that was maybe another uh, as big a deal as people made it out to be, and uh, was it sort of surprising to you, or was it indicative of the way things have been going? Yeah. That's a good question, and I will, you know, caveat this by saying that we don't know too much about AlphaFold um, right now, especially AlphaFold two. Uh, uh, but uh, but no, it is it is definitely a very big deal. Uh, you know, as as you know, some of the early Nobel prizes were for uh, sequencing very important proteins like insulin, for example. Um, and so there has been very you know constant problems since I think for the, maybe for the last fifty years to try to discover more protein structures um, and, you know, accelerate a lot of this uh, progress. Because once you know protein structures, then you can help uh, figure out treatments for different diseases. Um, You can also try to develop new proteins that have various clinical applications as well as, you know, non-clinical applications as well. Uh, You know, for example, uh, designing new proteins to figure out how to break down different chemicals and chemical treatment plants and so on. So there's a lot of different applications. If you know what proteins, if you can figure out the structure of proteins and how they'll fold. Um, and so, yeah, so this problem has been around for, for decades. Um, and so coming in and, and bringing in a completely different toolkit to solving this problem, like DeepMind did, uh, I think is, is just incredible. Um, and it's very, you know, it does remind me of like deep variant in many ways, which is you, ha- you have these, you know, whole set of classical algorithms designed for this with a lot of domain expertise. And then you come in <laughs> with this very different technology. And I don't know the details of AlphaFold, to be honest. I don't know how much domain ex- uh, expertise it involves, but my hunch is it probably involves a lot less domain expertise. <laughs> it's more about data collection, data cleaning, and, you know, then just training these really, really large uh, networks. And it's just incredible. It's, I, I think it's. I think it's very. Uh, it deserves the hype. And as we learn more about it, we'll see how, how how general this approach is. You know, one of the one of the limitations of, the, of these approaches, and I think of machine learning models in general that we have to figure out, is that they're very specific to a specific problem. Right. You have one network that's designed for one task, um, and it's it, if the task changes just a little bit, that network becomes obsolete. You have to train a completely different model. And there are, of course, a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of research being done in how to build more generalizable models and, and more models that are more modular and tunable and so on. But uh, I, I think for the most part in practice, you train these really large models, you put in so much computational resources, but then you find they're not very general, actually. You know, if you change the domain just a little bit. So we'll see. We'll see how well AlphaFold does. Um, but I think the progress has been pretty mind-blowing to anyone who's been watching. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, to be fair, at least now nowadays, if we don't have overly general neural networks, it does mean that getting published is easier. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like 80% of papers is just a new neural net architecture for some task, whatever. 
Um, but yeah, getting back to maybe um, your own research, right? Not something that's out there. You, you've published, you know, quite a few papers by now. Um, we have novel research contributions. We don't want to dive too deep and get overly technical. Um, but um, can you maybe just pick one you've worked on that you think is interesting or cool and describe what it was all about and yeah, what was what is going on with it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so one uh, algorithm that I worked on was uh, contrastive PCA. So PCA, principal components analysis, it's uh, an algorithm that you know we all we all learn at some point in our <laughs> uh, machine learning courses. Um, and basically, the goal of PCA is to take um, very complicated data and to simplify its representation by just looking at some of the, co- the the most dominant signals in your data. And in biology and medicine, particularly it's oftentimes used to remove noise in your data because you have so many different sources of signals uh, coming from various experimental artifacts and so on, and you want to remove that. And oftentimes a way to do that is just to do PCA on your data. Um, But one of the things that we noticed is that PCA doesn't necessarily remove the noise. It just removes anything that isn't dominant signal. So it would kind of be like, for example, you taking this podcast recording, and let's say in post-processing, you're trying to remove the noise, um, the background noise or something like that. And so you could do PCA and you could say, hey, I want to keep the top, you know, the dominant signals and I want to remove all of these other signals. But what if, and that might work well, but what if the noise is really loud? You know, it's the dom, it, the noise itself is the dominant signal. Um, in that case, what would happen is you'd remove all of the, you know, our voices and you just keep the background noise. And PCA is kind of dumb in that way. It, you know, it's blind to what's important and what's not important. It just takes the dominant signals. And so what we what we developed was this thing called contrastive PCA. And the idea is now you're working with two signals or two data sets. And one of your data sets is your original data set. But then the other uh, data set is only your background noise. Think of it as kind of a you know, whole other track that you had recorded that just had the background noise. Uh, oftentimes it's easy to get that signal, especially in biomedical settings. Okay, so you have this, you have two data sets, one is signal plus noise, and then the other is just noise. Um, And then what contrastive PCA does is it looks at the signals that are enhanced in one data set compared to the other. And so if you do that, you end up getting representations which are usually uh, have very little noise, which are very rich in signal, and are more specific to uh, to the signals that you have in mind. So I've kind of given the example of signal and, and noise, but it could be like important signal versus less important signal. And so it gives you a little bit more control over how you want to use uh, dimensionality reduction or, or PCA. Got it. Yeah, I remember uh, we chatted about it over lunch at some point and that definitely sounded cool. I think you pub- you got published in Nature with that one, right? That was in Nature Communications, yeah. Yeah, so... You know, a bit of a big deal, but anyway, definitely a cool uh, project there. But uh, moving on, um, you know, more recently, last couple of years, you've been focusing more on the entrepreneur side with Gradio, right? So you, you've done a good deal of research, but maybe uh, more on the company side in the past couple of years. So um, yeah, let's delve into that. What sort of inspired you to make that move and, and how has that progressed over time, let's say? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I've always been interested, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, on the entrepreneurship side of things. 
and I had been looking for what is, you know, what is kind of an interesting problem that we could turn into a company. Um, and then one problem that I, I would come back to is this problem of doing interdisciplinary machine learning. So oftentimes I would build a model, I would build a machine learning model, but it wasn't for myself, right? I was, I was, kind of, I was the developer, but the real user would be a clinician or would be a chemist or sometimes even a, a business user, for example. And so, you know, when we would, we would share these models with somebody else, sometimes they would find problems with the model or even just getting them to use the model was a bit of a challenge. Um, and uh, sometimes they would try it out and then they would say, hey, this model actually does not work in real world settings. <laughs> and that would be kind of disheartening. I remember actually talking one time with uh, one of my fellow researchers, uh, and she, she mentioned that she had developed this really cool model uh, to look at patients in the ICU and movements and all of this stuff and, and from video. And, uh, and I was like, this is so cool. You know, we should try deploying this to the clinic. And she was like, no way. I would never trust this to work in an, an actual ICU. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, this, this like at the back of my mind, I, can, I just would keep thinking about these issues where you have a model that seems to work on some test set. Uh, you know, not just a training set, it works on a test set. It's enough to get published, but it's not going to really work in the real world. And, you know, why is it, why does this happen? And so the, my conclusion was it happens because it's a workflow, it's a workflow problem. We, as machine learning researchers, we train models, we test them on these static test sets, and we just iterate until we have a suitable test performance. But never in this feedback loop is the real world performance included, right? Like I never build a model test in the real world and say, oh, okay, it's not working. Let me iterate. Like that's not part of the feedback loop typically. And so I wanted to make that easier. And I started talking to a bunch of you know, researchers and also thinking about my own experience. And, and there's basically two obstacles to deploying these models in real world settings. One of them is just deployment of machine learning models is, is really painful. Um, you know, it's as machine learning researchers, we know one thing, you know, which is how to tr build and train these models. We like Python. We're comfortable with it. We don't uh, typically enjoy the process of deploying these models. It's, it's DevOps. <laughs> DevOps. Um, so that's one problem. Um, the other problem is you also, it's not just, uh, it's not just enough to release a model as some sort of REST API, which there are lots of libraries that help you do that. Oftentimes you're releasing the model for a, uh, for an interdisciplinary setting, like I was saying earlier. So your end user has to be able to use your model in some sort of accessible way, for example, a GUI or some sort of web application or mobile application. And so we wanted to make that process easier because right now it's, it's pretty painful. Again, you know, I like Python. You, you like Python. I don't know how much you like, you know, front end web development and <laughs> much less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, we want to make that process easier. So we started with this open source library called Gradio. And what that does is it's a Python library. So you're, you're in Python. It just With just a few lines of Python, you can create a front end for your model and you can deploy it um, so that someone can try it out immediately. It's super fast. And, and if you're interested, you can try it uh, visiting our website, uh, gradio.app, and you can see some example code. Um, and so when we started that, uh, a lot of people started using it, which was very gratifying, but it was still open source. Um, we got in touch with Pair Ventures, which is this fantastic... Uh, incubator seed stage firm uh, that's based in Palo Alto. They actually work with a lot of Stanford startups. Um, and so they gave us some money to start expanding this. And we explored a bunch of different problems around this space. And ultimately, we drilled into this problem, which is let's make it easier to deploy and demo these models. 
Um, and now, yeah, now it's been the second year. Uh, actually, uh, I think it's been more than two years now uh, running radio, which has been really cool. We've been uh, continuing to develop the open source library. So now I can do a lot more things. Um, but also we've been focused on uh, building out the commercial side, of course. And so we're working with a few different organizations on doing things like powering clinical trials that are based off of machine learning models uh, so that uh, these models can easily be used in the clinic and used by patients and doctors. And we're excited to see where things go. Got it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, um, yeah, it's it's interesting how I think things we sort of have a bit of an idea of how to do machine learning, deep learning and research. Like there's a, you know, a set way of doing things, but with AI having somewhat recently become so useful and practical, figuring out how to get it out into the real world and in various settings and, um, you know, contexts, industries is still okay. much more of a question mark. And uh, it's, it's a growing phase. So that, that looks like a very relevant yeah. area that you're working on. So, um, yeah, maybe uh, I'm, you describe that you've had a lot of use, et cetera. Uh, do you have any examples of maybe like success stories or, or pretty cool uh, things that were enabled by Gradio? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a lot. So at the last Neurops conference, we actually had uh, a lot of different machine learning uh, researchers and uh, a lot of different papers that actually, as part of their paper, um, they all and as part of their presentation, they also released a Gradio interface for their model. Um, and so that was really gratifying to see. And, you know, many of these are out there. You can actually see our model hub. So you can use a lot of these state-of-the-art machine learning models. And you can use them without even necessarily knowing how to code, right? Because, again, a lot of these models are built for such a diverse audience. You have medical models. You have a lot of so many models built for photographers, right, for background removal and this kind of thing. And, um, and so you can actually use a lot of these models, try them out. And the cool thing is that you can also use this to explore biases that might be in the model. And so you might remember that controversy, uh, what was it, a few months ago when Twitter, uh, Twitter's, crop, uh, Twitter's cropping, tool, yeah, 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 cropping yeah. tool was found to have this bias against darker faces. And so what we did was, we part of looking into that, uh, we actually worked with Vox to build an algorithm similar to, to Twitter's cropping algorithm. And we let them explore the different biases. And again, you have you had this team of journalists that were looking into this model, trying to understand the different biases that might be at play, quantifying those biases and um, exposing that. And just very recently, I think Twitter announced that they had gotten rid of their cropping algorithm because of these biases. And now lets you post, um, you know, <laughs> pictures as big or as long as you want. So that's a small victory. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, yeah, it's being used in, in a lot of different medical projects as well. Um, Cis, you know, a lot of companies are using it as well. So Cisco's AI team uses it a lot, a lot for their internal demos. Uh, Google's explainability team, Amazon's recognition team. We have a lot of different users in, in, in different settings. That's cool. Yeah, and uh, I think another cool part about it is it's mentioned on on your site, Gradio.app, that you know it integrates very well in the other tool set that people have. Uh, so you know, Jupyter notebooks, uh, Collab notebooks, etc. Yeah, you know, there's this small set of evolving engineering tools uh, that are, is pretty young, still in machine learning. Yeah, and yeah, what's what's neat is 
certainly these are useful for researchers, but I think even more so for practitioners, hackers, you know, when you're trying to build a project, usually you're, you're going to go and iterate in a Jupyter notebook or even Python. And it has been very challenging in the past to like visualize what your model is doing well. Yeah. Um, aside from, you know, graphs of TensorFlow. So uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's um, definitely useful for anyone who's doing a project out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then I guess we can also mention the other thing, which I believe is is the newest endeavor you've taken on <laughs> among many, uh, which is the uh, Fatima Al Firi Fellowship. So this is quite cool. Obviously, as as a PhD student, I'm very fond of fellowships, as <laughs> as I'm sure you are. Yeah. And um, yeah, so this is broadly, I'm aware, is a ninth month program for CS students from around the world. And uh, yeah, what I'm curious about sort of what inspired you to start a fellowship and why do you think this was needed as opposed to all the other ones that exist out there? Definitely, yeah. So this is very different, I think, from most existing fellowships. So let me give you the backstory of this fellowship. So in 2019, I was contacted by a friend of a friend. His name was Fateh. Uh, he was at that time a senior at Boazici University in Istanbul, Turkey. And he reached out to me saying, uh, asking just for advice on applying to PhD programs. And as part of that, I asked him, hey, do you have any sort of research experience? And he was like, oh, no, not really. You know, I, he, he, by the way, he's a very smart student, you know, one of the smartest people I know. And he is, uh, but, you know, undergrad research wasn't really a thing at his university. And I don't think it's, at many universities around the world, it's not as common as your ops, for example, are here in the U.S. And so uh, I, I told him, you know, you kind of need PhD experience. You, know, you, you almost kind of need a PhD to get into a PhD. You need, you need research. <laughs> yeah, you need research these days, especially for CS AI. For yeah, sure. especially for CS. It's so competitive. And so uh, I offered to work with him actually on a project. And I said, you know, maybe I can just remotely supervise you. And I had this project that I had in mind which was uh, how to do feature selection with, with deep neural networks. Um, and so we started working together and he did an amazing job. And, and, you know, it was completely remote. You know, you can imagine like how hard it is to work on research. But imagine like being remotely supervised, uh, you know, but, uh, but the amazing thing is that all of these resources that you need in order to cutting edge machine learning are online. You know, you have collab notebooks, you have archive with all the papers you need to read. Um, and you have mentors who can Zoom call you from around the world. So we were doing Zoom calls before it was cool. Um, <laughs> and that was pretty, that was, that was, that was pretty awesome because we ended up, you know, working for maybe six months, seven months. We wrote up a manuscript, we submitted it, um, it got accepted to ICML and he uh, then used that as part of his PhD application. Um, and then he got admitted uh, as a PhD student at Georgia Tech right out of undergrad. And he, I mean, he's a very smart student, so I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to take credit for that. But, you know, given how competitive things are and how you need research experience, I do feel like it had a, a significant impact on his PhD application. And so that was really satisfying, very fulfilling. And so I was started thinking about ways to scale that up. And I started talking with him as well. And, and so we and a few other organizers created this fellowship, the Fatima Fellowship. And what, what the fellowship aims to do is it aims to connect existing PhD students and existing postdocs, you know, uh, who are here in the U.S. or who are at least in established PhD programs 
it gives them the opportunity to mentor aspiring PhD students from around the world. Um, and so uh, it's different in a couple of, of ways. One is that we wanted to have like real concrete mentorship. And so I think mentorship is a fantastic idea. Unfortunately, sometimes it's defined in a very fuzzy way. And so we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was actually impactful and, and, and measurable. And so our goal with all of our mentor-mentee pairs is your goal is to write a paper or at least a preprint by the end of the year. So by the end of the nine months, you're, you're going to have a paper preprint out. And so that's a win-win. You know, it's great for the mentor. It's great for the mentee for sure. And the mentor also helps the mentee in other ways and other aspects of the PhD application as well. Um, and so that's one thing. Um, it's also different in the sense that it's uh, global in, in the way that I described. You're trying to help uh, folks from around the world. And so we have we had applicants. We opened up applications in February, and we had more than 250 applications in just three weeks um, from more than 40 countries. You know, so it's super. Uh, just the, the nature of it is, is is very diverse, and uh, and it's also very much focused on you know what do the fellows need. So one of the things that we heard from fellows is it'd be good to have some general guidance on technical, uh, you know, technical writing and how to read a paper and so on. And so in addition to these little you know. Um, mentor-mentee groups that we've created. We also have these monthly seminars where we bring all of the fellows together and all of the mentors, and we present on these topics that are broadly useful. Um, And so that's been really exciting to see. You know, we started in February, and so now this is the third month of the fellowship. And, you know, we already have uh, fellows who are uh, making, you know, who are, we already have fellows doing some real research experiments. Uh, who are starting to put things down on paper. We have some that are writing blog posts. I think some of them might be featured by The Gradient as well. Which yeah, is soon, I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, which is very exciting. And, you know, we're planning on growing. Uh, so we have some more folks who joined the team and are extending the Fatima Fellowship to other disciplines as well, so in the social sciences. Um, and so it's uh, it's just really exciting. And, you know, we have an open call if you're, if you're a mentor or um, if you would like to be part of the program either this year or next year, you know, just find us online, FatimaFellowship.com. Wow. Yeah, that is very cool. Um, definitely, uh, there are there have been some programs like this that are quite limited. So like uh, OpenAI has like a summer fellowship program or uh, there's various um, pre-doctoral programs at uh, Google and Facebook, but those are quite, you know, limited to get into and as you said, I think to get into a PhD uh, these days, having research experience is, is pivotal. And that's how I got in. I did research in undergrad where I was an undergrad researcher at a lab and then also yeah. in my master's. Um, so you're basically replicating what is already present in universities, uh, but you know, for people who aren't there already, which, which is a yeah. fantastic idea. Yeah, I would say it's present in universities in the U.S. in particular, but you have these extremely talented students from around the world who, you know, if it just was for the fact that they had access to research opportunities, they would be very compelling and very competitive applicants. Um, So I I do feel like one of the nice things about uh, this fellowship is that a lot of the mentors, including myself, feel that we can have a significant you know, you could you might call it like a counterfactual impact um, mm. in the sense that you know you could you could mentor a student here as well. You know, in the U.S., which is great. Obviously, I, I encourage everyone to do that. But there's so many other opportunities <laughs> for many students here, whereas that's not necessarily the case for for some of the students that we that we mentor. 
And so, yeah, I do feel like the, the, the counterfactual impact would be pretty high. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, I think, um, interesting timing in some sense, because, uh, you know, we just had the year of COVID, all the conferences went virtual, everyone yeah. grumbled about how it's not as fun. But at the same time, you know, I think people have reflected a bit on, you know, having virtual conferences is in other ways very nice in terms of, you know, making it so people from all over could participate uh, making it so it's not as much of a financial burden, uh, burden not as much of a time sink uh, as far as having to travel. Yeah, and yeah, I think it's it's always good to think about kind of the barriers that exist uh, that can be uh, removed and allow more talented, you know, excited, motivated people to try and contribute instead of being locked out. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the things I actually love about our field is that so many of the resources to do machine learning. So, you know, the computational resources, uh, the literature, it's really available online. And you have so many people around the world that are motivated and are jumping into the field. So I, I think it's gonna, be, it's gonna be really exciting to see how we can, uh, you know, how we can mentor some of these students and where they end up. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'll have to uh, take a look at the fellowship and see if uh, maybe I wanna mentor some people. We'll see. Yeah, definitely. I'd yeah. Love to have you. yeah and then uh, yes i think that's that's a very interesting kind of good overview of uh doing lately your main projects but i know you you <laughs> tend to do a lot of things in general so i'm sure there's some other things in your mind uh are there any other other things you're excited about doing in your you know, spare time that you might have. I, I did notice you have uh, this Muslim tech newsletter that's new. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if you want to get into that or anything else. Yeah. So I've been I've been actually uh, more interested in in writing uh, down some of my thoughts as well. I, I you know I love what you're doing. You've been blogging for a while actually. So I've I followed your your uh, <laughs> lead I think in, in, in starting this little newsletter. Where we just feature different products built by Muslim founders, Muslim researchers. Um, and so we have that up as well. That's on Substack. Yeah. And I'm fortunate to be working with one of my friends, Obeid Farouki, on this as well. I see. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we are also just starting a Substack thing now. So we are, you know, <laughs> following your lead on that one. But um, there we go. Yeah. No, it, it's, yeah, I, I also should take a look at that. It sounds interesting um yeah so i i think we've had quite an interesting conversation got into a lot of stuff uh, is there anything else you want to say to our listeners bring up or is that about it maybe remind them where they can go to check out your stuff uh, yeah well first of all thank you so much for having me andre i really appreciate it and i love the gradient i'm so glad that something like the gradient exists um i share a lot of your articles with uh, some of the fellows in the program so um, really awesome work. Um, yeah, just as a quick reminder, if you are interested in the Fatima Fellowship, either as a mentor or a, or a mentee, check out FatimaFellowship.com. So that's F-A-T-I-M-A Fellowship.com. Um, and if you want to check out Gradio for any of your applications, if you, if you want to build GUIs or demos from your machine learning model, the website is Gradio.app, G-R-A-D-I-O dot app. And thanks again, Andre. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Great time. And, and always glad to hear that people actually like the gradient where, you know, yeah. I'm just a facilitator. I just let people put stuff on there and try to make sure that it is good.
So yeah, with that, uh, thank you so much again. And thank you listeners for uh, being here and listening to this conversation. Once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Check out our newsletter at, or check out our magazine at gradient.pub and our newsletter at gradientpub.substack.com. If you are a fan of our work, please support it by sharing the Gradient with your friends subscribing to our newsletter and this very podcast, rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple and elsewhere. And if you are you know, a really big fan, you can also uh, look into how to support it financially over at thegradient.pop slash support. That's it. Uh, thank you again for listening and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.